Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. It's How Do We Fix It with Richard and Jim. Anissa Ramirez, how to look at science in a whole new way. We all start off as scientists. We all start off curious. If you look at a four-year-old's hands, they're completely dirty because they're, you know, engaging with the world. And so as a science evangelist, what I'm trying to do is get us back in touch with our wonder. So this nonsense about girls not being able to do STEM is because we have no memory in the system. Girls used to rock STEM at one point. Our show is about fixes. Not the same old left versus right. I am right, I'm right. and you are wrong. You're wrong. Yeah, something new. How to make the world a better place. How, How do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? So, Richard, we have a problem in our society, I think, is that so many people really don't understand science. Yeah, that's one of many problems. But it's really important because of the need for people to understand, for instance, why they need to vaccinate their kids or the basics of climate change. Right, right. Now, you know, I've been a science journalist, and I think a lot of the problem starts way back in schools. Kids aren't getting very good science education, and a lot of girls and minorities are getting filtered out of, of sort of science or STEM, you know, science, technology, engineering, math courses by the time they get through college. Yeah, many kids aren't even learning the basics of math and science, which closes off a whole bunch of career opportunities. So our guest today has some great ideas about how to address this problem. Her name is Anissa Ramirez. She's a chemist who works today as a science evangelist. I met Anissa initially at a TED conference, and I've been following her work on a variety of platforms ever since. Anissa is the author of Save Our Science and a, a book called Newton's Football, a really fun look at the underlying science of America's favorite sport. And she's also the host of a two-minute podcast, which I was listening to this morning, called Science Underground. So, Anissa, thank you so much for joining us. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from an undisclosed... No, I'm just joking. I'm from New- <laughs> A bunker. <laughs> I'm in New Haven, Connecticut. So thanks for joining us, Anissa. Now, you say that STEM has a PR problem. What do you mean by that? Well, first of all, the name is pretty uninviting, don't you think? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I've um, always hated it. <laughs> it yeah, it's, it's pretty bureaucratic. It's S-T-E-M, without the periods in between. It stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math. What it's trying to show us is that science, technology, engineering, and math are all going to be blended together like a smoothie. Uh, but when we see STEM, you know, we usually separate science, technology, engineering, and math from each other. But they're not. They're all wound up together. That's how life really operates. And the other thing is that we haven't really made it 
attractive. We haven't shown the relevancy of STEM just for everyday life, not only to get a job, but things like when you step outside, why are the leaves changing color? Um, how is it that we make the foods that are in front of us? All these things have a story, and that's what we need to do a better job of explaining. Yeah, Jim in the introduction said you're a science evangelist, and you have this podcast called Science Underground. So, so tell me a little bit about that and, and why you feel so strongly that there's a need to evangelize science. First of all, we all start off as scientists. We all start off curious. If you look at a four-year-old's hands, they're completely dirty because they're, you know, engaging with the world. But then something happens. So school happens, and we forget that we were curious beings, and we feel like we need to worry about what we get on a test, and we don't really think about understanding. We think about just making sure that we regurgitate the right answer. And so as a science evangelist, what I'm trying to do is get us back in touch with our wonder. Why is it that this happens? And I'm trying to give people permission to ask these questions again. So as someone who's covered science for a long time, I think part of the problem also is the way that scientists communicate their work to the public. If we want to get people back to a sense of wonder, the way scientists talk isn't always that conducive to it. It's the opposite. It doesn't bring wonder at all. In fact, it might help you with your insomnia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's not their fault. There's a canon within science that you want to be extremely precise and in the process of being very precise you lose your audience and what scientists need to do is relax a little bit uh, maybe not define things as precisely as they'd like but make sure that it's a little bit more open so that more people will understand and then you can spackle in the holes that you've put in but it's better to have a more outward reaching uh, approach bring in people, and then fix any things that uh, may not be understood fully. Right. But I can totally understand and sympathize with why they do this. I mean, there's such a, a strong code within science that you don't hype your results, you don't exaggerate your results. So every statement starts with about six qualifiers, but then scientists have to give each other permission to loosen up on that when they're talking to the public and not shame their fellow scientists for speaking a little bit more general colloquial language. I would even add that it's, it's against the culture to talk to the general public. You know, one of the most famous scientists that we all know is Carl Sagan. And Carl Sagan couldn't get into the national academies because they didn't value what he did in terms of presenting science in an understandable way to the general public. More people know Carl Sagan than the members of the national academy. So there's a disconnect within the culture. And Carl Sagan actually had a huge effect on my life. As a high school student, I got the opportunity to see him lecture a couple of times. And, of oh, course, wow. I, I followed all of his work. And, and I was not an astronomer. I didn't even go into astronomy. But it steered me towards science journalism and helped give me that sense of wonder about the natural world that I hope has stayed with me. He's had a tremendous impact on many, many lives. And again, more so than some folks who are working in the National Academies. And I'm not poo-pooing the National Academies. I love those guys. Uh, I think they do good work. But it just it shows you that we need to shift the culture. We also need to uh, value people who communicate science to the general public. I'm the non-scientist in the room and, and the guy who spent very little time thinking about the natural world and science. So convince me about the importance of, of science. You said something really interesting, which is that all kids are scientists, that they're just curious about the world. Um, I guess I glazed over at some point. Well, what I'm, what I'm assuming is that a smaller version of Richard used to ask lots of questions. Uh, maybe questions like, 
Uh, why do snowflakes have the shape that they do? Yeah. Why, why is the sky blue? Those kinds of questions. And so that's what I mean when I say children start off as scientists. They're asking why, which is all science is really about, asking why. And then we try and apply what we learn. And where we glaze over is that we have classes that teach things more so that they're preparing us for trivial pursuit. It's a random selection of facts that may not seem relevant to the questions that you're asking. Now, a lot of education reformers are saying tests are the problem. Are tests the problem in this case? Absolutely. I I, I like to say that we have a paralysis of analysis. The test used to be a way that we would just kind of evaluate what we were doing. But now we teach to the test. People's uh, salaries are linked to their performance on the test. So what they will do is make sure that children do well on the test. That has nothing to do with understanding and learning and wonder. That has to do with regurgitating facts so that you do well on the test. So I, I can attest. I can attest to that since my wife was a, a middle school math teacher for for many years. But I'm also interested in this phenomenon we're seeing where. Um, Girls and minorities tend to drop out of pursuing some of these fields by the time they get through school. A lot of times people who enter interested in a certain field wind up dropping out of the sciences. So what are the things that contribute to this? Well, I want to throw a question out at you. Uh, maybe you gentlemen can answer this. In, in the 1890s, how many girls were in a STEM high school classroom? Not many. <laughs> I mean, oh, I don't okay. know. Maybe half. It was 57%. Wow. So this nonsense about girls not being able to do STEM is because we have no memory in the system. Girls used to rock STEM at one point. But what happened is the home economics movement came along, and what that did is it pulled all the girls out of classes like chemistry and physics. And when the home economics bubble collapsed, girls didn't have a place to go, and they also picked up the uh, rumor that they can't do STEM. And also in terms of people of color, there's a tremendous history of people who've done great work Uh, who are African-American scientists, Latino scientists, uh, but that isn't taught. And so all children need a mentor. They need to look at somebody who's their North Star. And if you don't have a North Star, you feel like you're reinventing the wheel every time and you get discouraged. That's reasonable for someone to think that they're the only one who's doing this to eventually just get discouraged. And you've talked a lot about some of your mentors as you were coming up. Yeah, I was pretty lucky. Um, First of all, my mentors weren't really actual people. Uh, I got excited about science from a television program on on PBS called 321 Contact. And I love that show because there was an African-American girl who was solving problems. And I didn't know exactly what that was, but I'm like, I have to do what she's doing. And I learned later on that the word was science. And then along the way, what helped me is I had great teachers. Uh, My fifth grade teacher loved science, Miss Donahue. Uh, When I got to high school, Miss Howard loved science. And so that's the other thing that I followed. And when I got to college, Mrs. Morse was my chemistry teacher and she loved science. And so I used their love as a way to fuel me, to push me through the process. Yeah, well. I, th- I think you make a really interesting point and it goes way beyond science and it's how kids learn. And I often think we hear these stories about mentors and about individual teachers that really made a difference to a child's life. Absolutely. But we shouldn't rely solely on luck. You know, I was lucky. And uh, we should do a better job so that all children, if they maybe they don't have that, they have that well-meaning teacher who just doesn't have that passion, they shouldn't fall through the cracks. We should do more to make sure that everyone gets a shot. Well, speaking of falling through the cracks, what is the percentage of, of African-Americans and women in scientific PhD programs? Do you have a sense of, of how much uh, ground we have to make up? 
We have a lot of ground to make up. I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but they're always around 20% for for women. Um, I'll give you this. When I graduated with my PhD in material science uh, from Stanford, uh, there were nine black PhDs in engineering. And that's not at Stanford. That was in the United States. Wow. So it's not very good. It's not very good. And I don't think we need to shoot for everyone to be a PhD. I think everyone just needs to understand STEM to some extent so that they can incorporate it in their own lives. If you're a chef, you're going to need STEM because cooking is chemistry. Uh, if you're just a normal citizen, uh, we, we mentioned this before, but just the normal citizens need to have STEM in their lives so that they can make better decisions about the things that are in front of them. Well, I think if, one thing that's really important is, especially when kids go to college, that there are scientific courses for non-scientists that are really engaging. I was lucky enough. I went to a, a college in England and learned about genetics from John Maynard Smith, and it was the one science class that really excited me. And I learned about scientific method, and I learned about some of the issues that are raised by science, science, and you know, I'm much more interested in politics and economics and history, but that course really helped me. And I think that that's also something that perhaps people can benefit from. I would agree. When I was at Yale, one of the last courses I taught was a science class for liberal arts majors. And it's a complete setup to fail because these are students who have put off uh, their science class to the last semester and don't really want to be there. So I said, how am I going to make sure that this stuff is compelling and interesting. And what I did is I borrowed from journalists and writers is it's about story. You know, if you tell a story and you weave in the science, uh, they'll get the science without even knowing. I actually want to hear a little about your story. And he said, before you came to Yale, you actually worked in private industry and you have a whole bunch of patents in material science. What's your favorite one? Uh, my favorite one is the one that uh, was commercialized for a while. And essentially it's a glue. Uh, that's the sexy way to describe it. Um, inside of your computer are all kinds of strange materials. Some are metals, some are ceramics like you would find in, uh, a gla- uh, in, in your plate. Um, and all of them need to be connected and bonded together. Um, now, metals can be bonded to each other directly, and you can do that with a material called solder. Uh, we say solder here, we say solder in the UK, S-O-L-D-E-R. Um, and it's essentially a metallic glue. But sometimes you want to bond metals to ceramics. And you can't do that. Uh, You can't do that directly. So what we did is we made a solder that can bond to these ceramics by putting highly reactive elements from the periodic table. So if you look at the periodic table, there's these two rows at the very bottom that we tend to ignore. They're called the lanthanides. They love oxygen. So we put those into into regular solder. And when the the solder melted, the lanthanides came out bonded with the ceramics directly because they're often made of oxygen. And so that we had a super glue. So we called it a universal solder because it could bond to metals. And Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. 
Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. To ceramics. So let's, let's move to solutions and things that uh, can help change this science deficit on our society. Uh, I, I want to go to individuals and to scientists, but let's start with companies um, and what they can do to help. Well, McDonald's is one of the hugest Wi-Fi services in the United States. A lot of kids go there after school to do their homework. There's a huge opportunity to, for there to be science uh, on their Wi-Fi system to students. So that's one of the things that us McDonald's could do. Uh, another thing that I'm excited about that I tried to work on for a couple of years is Walmart. Walmart has millions and millions of people coming through their doors every day, 200 million customers a day. And if you can get 10% to look at a small screen that shows a science PSA, you significantly move the needle. In, so, in what, how might that work? Well, they have these monitors are all over, and they also have some places where um, kids can kind of hang out, like in the electronics section where the TVs are. Well, instead of having a commercial, let's put a one-minute science PSA where the, you explain – a, a no. PSA meaning a public service announcement. Sorry, yeah, yeah sorry. Yeah, yeah. Public service announcement. I'm, I'm talking in acronyms. This is the age of, <laughs> this Scientist. Is the age of Twitter. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, yeah, but if you have a small one-minute science commercial, if you will, on one of those televisions where you explain maybe a product that people are going to be eating or how that certain electronics works, you can move the needle. You can get people more engaged with the products that they're using. I love that. And I love the idea that not every change has to be a big top-down initiative. Sometimes it can come up from the, the grassroots. You've also talked a lot about bringing back the curiosity or keeping that curiosity alive in kids. Are there some specific things that schools can do to help foster that? Well, sc schools are stuck right now with the testing. But what can, what can teachers do individually? Well, they can incorporate a flipped class approach. That is where the lessons are given as homework. Watch this video at night. And during the day when we're together, we can discuss these things. So the material is covered, but more robust understanding can be provided in the classroom. There's also PBL, project-based learning, where teachers would have the, instead of using narrative or, or story, but they have the science incorporated in something that children are building. And they're willing to learn because they're passionate about getting this project off the ground. One example of grassroots action is what happened during the Flint water crisis with lead in the water. What happened there with citizen action? Well, Flint had regular everyday people solve this problem. A mother and a couple of folks worked with a scientist. They got science kits to test the water. So they couldn't get the information directly. But by using science, just with some science kits that you can get at a hardware store, they were able to test what was in it and be able to re push back that the water is unacceptable. And what they also did, which, which was very scientific, is that they also tested the water in different regions so that they had good data that it wasn't just selected from one region, but from many different regions. And I love this because as a journalist, I've seen so many stories where people are complaining, the water smells funny, our neighbor got sick, our cat died. And of course, scientists would call all that anecdotal evidence. And what they did was they went and made sure they got some some real evidence, not just a personal impression, but they developed a baseline of facts that showed that there actually was a problem. This wasn't just people's subjective impressions. 
Absolutely. And it was some it was some scientists at Virginia Tech that were very instrumental in helping uh, the folks in Flint get those water testing uh, uh, kits. And they got a grant from the National Science Foundation, like an emergency grant. So it just shows you how citizen science can be empowered. One thing you've done a lot of, which I think is often overlooked, is just showing that science can be fun and funny and and, uh, and quirky. I mean, you did a whole book on the science of football. What were some of your favorite little factoids out of that book? Well, when that book came out and people read it, they felt really smart because they had been thinking about these things already. And that was one of the things that we had crossed over when we uh, wrote Newton's Football, that what we were doing is showing you stuff that you're looking at already, but we're just giving you another language, the language of science to describe it. So so give us an example, like the trajectory of a football or, or what were some of the oh, things yeah. that Oh, yeah. Well, a lot of people, they, they looked at a football and one of the things we talked about in the football is that a football, when it travels, it doesn't really travel straight. Its nose is sort of canted to the left or right, depending on uh, if the quarterback is left-handed or right-handed. And many people we were like, yeah, I saw that. And then we can explain the science behind it. And then we can ask kooky questions like, why don't woodpeckers get concussions? So that is an, an easier way to talk about this hard topic of concussions without being heavy handed. We, can, we all can think about woodpeckers. We can all think about why they're doing it. And inside that story, we're talking about what is a concussion and why is it that we get concussions and birds don't. And in your uh, Science Underground podcast uh, not too long ago, you did a fun little item on the connection between frogs' legs and the Oscars. Yeah, let's listen to that first and then have you respond. The Oscar, a beautiful gold statue, but it isn't 100% gold. That would be way too expensive. The statue is actually made of an inexpensive metal of bronze that's coated with gold. To understand how to make gold coatings, we have to think about frogs' legs. Long ago in the 1700s in Italy, Luigi Galvani, a professor of anatomy, was dissecting frogs and noticed something strange. While dissecting a frog with a metal scalpel and a copper clamp, the dead frog twitched like it was alive. And this spooky thing happened every time he touched two different metals to the frog's spine. Galvani claimed that he found animal electricity, and many scientists believed it. However, on the other side of Italy, Alessandra Volta, a physics professor, began to think the twitching wasn't caused by animal electricity, but by the two different metals. You see, when two different metals are put together in a liquid, this sets up a chemical reaction that creates electricity. In the frog, electricity was moving from one metal to the other, causing the legs to twitch. By the way, this is how batteries work. Two different metals in a solution make electricity. So what's all this got to do with the Oscars? Good question. Well, electricity moves from one metal to the other, from A to B. But if you look under the microscope, you'll see that this is not the full picture. Metal atoms are moving too. Atoms are moving in the opposite direction from B to A. That means one of the metals is getting coated by the other. So in making an Oscar, a bronze statue is connected to a battery and put into a chemical tank with microscopic gold in it. The gold moves towards the Oscar and coats it. And this process makes the beautiful statue that so many celebrities want. What these celebrities might not know is that their beautiful icon might not have been possible without some experiments with frogs like so what i like to do in science underground and also in the book that i'm writing right now is that i like to show these unusual connections because that's my hook and with that we'll draw out the story so that you can see how these things are connected and, and all throughout the process weave in the science well that's great i think a mission that is really worthy of your talents and important for society so thank you so much for joining us today. anisa ramirez thanks a lot oh thank you guys and our producer miranda schaefer anything you, you think we uh we 
we missed? Yeah, I have a few questions. Can you explain Uh what... (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned that there are a lot of minority scientists. Can you name some people? All right, well, I'm not going to be able to name them off the top of my head, but let's try a little experiment. Let's say that you wake up and black inventors haven't been around. What does your day look like? Well, you look down, your shoes aren't there because the gentleman who created the lasting machine, the machine that sews it together, uh, hasn't, hasn't made that. Well, you go to iron your shirt. Well, you can't do that because the ironing board hasn't been made. Well, you go to get another shirt out of the dryer. You can't do that because the dryer hasn't been made. Uh, Well, you go to comb your hair. You can't do that because the comb hasn't been made. Well, you want to brush your hair. You can't do that because the brush hasn't been made. And on and on and on. There's these small things. If you look at the patent literature, you'll see these inventions made by African-American scientists that have all peppered our world. It's just that we're unaware of them. That's great. You said that you use stories to explain science to college kids. Can you just give us an example? Okay. When I was talking to my students, I, I talked about how Napoleon tried to conquer Russia in a very, very cold winter. And he failed because, well, first of all, you don't go to Russia in the wintertime. Uh, but the other thing that caused him to fail is that the buttons that were on his jacket were made out of tin. And tin does this unusual thing that when it gets really, really cold, it undergoes a chemical transformation. It changes from one state to another. And what tin does is it actually becomes dust. So what happened to these gentlemen who were, you know, trying to fight the Russians is that their coats were open and their pants were falling down because they couldn't keep them up because the buttons were disintegrating. Holy cow. I have never heard that before. So that's my that's the whole point. I'm trying to find what I call B.A.H.'s, big ass hooks, so that I grab your attention and then you'll permit me to tell you a little bit about tin. If, yeah. I just, if I go in and just tell you about tin, you're like, what is this chick doing? So, so for lack of a trouser button, Napoleon's great army was lost. You've got me hooked. Thank you, guys. It was really a pleasure. Pleasure was ours. Thank you. Great. Bye-bye. So, Richard, I, you know, I've always loved Anissa's work, but it's so great to hear her on our show. I just think she's such a great advocate for a scientific worldview for everybody. Yeah, one of, one of my favorite answers was when Miranda just asked her about, okay, so name some African-American scientists. And instead of naming anybody, she said, okay, here are some of the things right. that wouldn't that may not have been invented if African-Americans hadn't come along and invented them. I right, thought that was great. Right, right. And, well, and here's why I, all this matters. I think as she points out just from that little example, science underpins our whole world. And and when we think about what kind of world we want to have, we need to understand how to think scientifically, how to think empirically. And I think that even aside from scientific information or scientific facts, a lot of people don't even understand how science works. What is the scientific method? What is the skepticism that scientists bring to every question and the ability to strip down a question to what are some testable facts that it can either confirm or deny this hunch. That's the essence of the scientific method. And yet it's fairly alien to a lot of people. It's not taught that well. It's alien, I think, to a lot of us. So I think that what Anissa was saying about curiosity is crucial. If we can be curious about science and if we can excite children to, mm-hmm. to explore that curiosity, then perhaps we can 
give that spark that's needed to light the fire right. uh, of, of curiosity about science and change the culture. But what's interesting about science is it has two parts. One part is that curiosity. It's that, it's that spark, that drive to know. The other part is this very rigorous kind of pruning. You know, it's it's looking for, okay, I've got a hunch about why, you know, the sky is blue. What evidence could prove or disprove my hypothesis? And then science is very tough-minded about dropping false ideas. And this is what we don't see in the public sphere. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah. Is, is we don't – people get ideas about policy or, or some other issue and they stick to them because – this is what my tribe believes rather than saying, okay, this could be an empirical question. What facts can prove or disprove this idea? And once we have the facts, we need to move on. Yeah, we're right in the middle of the political season right now, and I'm shocked by how badly reported polls are. There are many polls that are completely unscientific. Right. If, statistics is a great example of an area where most people should have just a basic knowledge of how statistics work, and they don't. And it's really important in all kinds of areas in public policy, but also even if in your own life, even if you're running a business. Yeah, and never mind readers and listeners. What about journalists? There are many oh, examples of journalists that, that, that they don't understand don't this either. Don't get me started. Journalists are, uh, I've got be, you started. T- tend to be really, really bad at this. One of my favorite corrections, a newspaper correction from last year, was a story in the New York Times. The correction said the... Um, in a travel story about the Great Lakes uh, misstated the age of the Great Lakes. They are not 40 billion years old, as the story um, uh, as the story reported. Um, and as reported in a follow-up correction, they're not 20 billion years old. Um, in fact, they are, you know, 20,000 or 12,000 years old. Um, and it's like 40 billion years. That's older than the universe. That's older than the universe. So some somebody just said, oh, that's a number, not my department. I mean, I don't expect everybody to know the age of the universe. But when you see a number like that, aren't shouldn't you have a little bell that goes off like, billion, isn't that a pretty big number? Maybe I should look this up. And the fact that that ran in the New York Times, I think, is is both hilarious and incredibly alarming. Well, this may not be alarming, but our time has kind of run out. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. I'm Richard Davies. And thanks for joining us with scientist Anissa Ramirez. Her podcast, Science Underground, is more than worth a listen, and it's only two minutes of your time. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. And our engineer and technician is Denise Barbarita. Here at the Mona Lisa Studios in beautiful uptown Manhattan. How Do We Fix It? Produced by Davies Content. We make digital audio for companies and nonprofits. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.